Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Did you know that students get it free? The Irish Times offers a free digital subscription to all full-time undergraduates. Keep up to date for free with quality journalism and reporting. Claim yours today at irishtimes.com slash subscribe slash student. Welcome back to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. Today I will be speaking to Kate Ewart-Biggs, Deputy Chief Executive of the British Council. If the surname sounds familiar, you may recognise it from her father, Christopher Ewart-Biggs. He had just taken up the post of British Ambassador to Ireland in the 1970s, when he was assassinated by the IRA. Kate was only eight years old at the time, with two siblings and a remarkable mother. In this episode, she speaks about her role with the British Council, her career journey which brought her to all corners of the world, about growing up in a rather glamorous diplomatic family and the brief time she spent in Ireland before her father was murdered. I was eight, so, you know, my my memories of it are actually pretty vivid, actually. I mean, I, you know, I remember going on the ferry and, you know, a a lot of attention, I suppose, as you get of of a sort of diplomatic family at that level, I remember the house, you know, that was sort of, you know, off off a, a sort of country lane and lots of walls around it. With a donkey. I remember these these sort of the donkeys. Yes. The, the donkeys significant because I'm really allergic to horses, oh. and I could never ride. But I'm not allergic to donkeys, and that therefore I'd always wanted a donkey because I, <laughs> my brother and sister were always off on you know riding, and I wasn't allowed to go. So the donkey was like a major feature for me as an eight year old. But before we bring you that interview with Kate, I want to tell you about a brilliant new documentary due to open in Irish cinemas this October. Two American labs are coming under scrutiny because of faulty cancer tests in Ireland. This is my medical file. This is when I got all the information back from copies from my solicitor. The original result was no abnormality detected. And then when they reviewed it on the audit, it says squamous cell carcinoma. Squamous cell carcinoma is cancer. I'm sure most of you are aware of the incredible Vicky Phelan and her mission to expose the cervical check scandal here in Ireland. The new documentary, appropriately, is called Vicky and is a profound and intimate portrayal not only of her fight to expose the truth, but also of her own personal battle to stay alive. It failed me. It failed the 201 other women. I don't have an option at the moment. If I don't go on this drug, I'm dead. You've gotten nearly four years, you said. They told you you were going to be gone in six to 12 months. If you do good, you get good back in return. And that's the way I've tried to live my life. The Women's Podcast, together with Volta Pictures, would like to send you and a guest to a special preview screening of Vicky at the Lighthouse Cinema in Dublin this coming Wednesday, October 5th at 7pm. We've got five pairs of tickets to give away. And if you'd like a pair, check your diary if you're free on Wednesday and just email us at 
the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. That's all you have to do. Put Vicky in the subject line and we'll pick five winners at random over the weekend. Now, back to today's episode. Kate Ewart Biggs was just 22 years old when she lost her mother to cancer, which resurrected the early trauma of her father's death. Feeling alone and without a sense of purpose, she left Britain and took off to sub-Saharan Africa, where she lived and worked for many years. And it was this experience which ultimately reshaped her view of the world, as she tells me in this inspirational conversation. Here she is, Deputy Chief of the British Council, Kate Ewart-Biggs. Kate, Irish people of a certain generation will find your surname hugely familiar, and we'll get to that, but you're here as Deputy CEO of the British Council, and it's striking how that career choice resonates so powerfully with your family background and with tragedy. But first of all, tell me a bit about the British Council, because I want to set you in context right now. Sure. So the British Council is uh, the UK's cultural relations organisation. So our role in the world essentially is to build better trust and understanding between the UK and countries all around the world through the use of um, the great assets that the UK has in English language, in education and in arts and culture. So effectively, the British Council is there to make friends for the UK through giving opportunities to people, to millions of people around the world in those areas. And the theory is is that when people engage with an organisation positively like the British Council because they learn English with us or they have an opportunity to study in the UK, then they're, they're likely to perceive the UK as a really positive place to come and visit or to come and trade in in the future. So essentially, you know, we're building positive relationships for the UK all around the world. Give me an example of a project, Kate, that you've initiated. And I know you, you're also doing some work in Ireland, as is quite obvious from our interview here. So tell us about that. Yeah, so I mean, you know, we, we, we do do work in Ireland and we have an operation in uh, both um, Ireland and in Northern Ireland. And the idea is exactly as I've described, is to, you know, to contribute to building a positive relationship between the UK and Ireland. And um, we had a brilliant project called Lives Entwined, which effectively asked a whole set of different writers from Ireland and the UK to describe their relationship between the two islands and look at, you know, the history of that relationship and look at, you know, what things in the future could be made better. And, and I wrote a piece for, for one of the publications as well. You're then able to create a whole set of fora for people to come and listen to some of the readings and actually just, you know, really contribute to the thinking about, you know, as, as that relationship kind of goes up and down, doesn't it? And it I sure know that does. at the moment things are quite tricky. I think the role in arts and culture in providing a platform for people to really get underneath the issues, to talk people to people, to put aside the politics of it and really build strong relationships with each other. You know, that is a very good example of the kind of work that we do in Ireland. Yeah, I think the word tricky carries a lot of weight there. We'll come back to that later on. <laughs> Kate, uh, people might expect a, a British Council grandee such as yourself, you do have a title, to be unremittingly glorifying of Britain and all its pomps. But in fact, your travels have made you remarkably clear-sighted about what others have to bring. I mean, I was very taken with stories you tell about the classroom exchanges between Ugandan children and UK mm. children and yeah. what each side got out of that or didn't. I was intrigued by how you 
observed the experience on both sides, that the, the British kids felt that they were immensely superior and that the Ugandans would have a lot to learn from going into their classrooms in England. And the British kids were quite surprised in some cases. Tell me a bit about that. Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't call them immensely superior, but I think, you know, the, the way the world's set up, isn't it, is to believe that, you know, a place like the UK with our thriving economy and our education system is going to provide something that that is superior in some ways, is is has more resources, etc., than, than an education system in in the UK in Uganda. And in some ways, that's true. I mean, the resources that we put into our education systems, our buildings, our teachers, our infrastructure is far far greater than you would find in Uganda. However, what what the British kids found was a sort of commitment to education. You know, a thirst to learn because it was such it's such a privilege in Uganda to go to school, you know, you know, parents will do all they can to find the fees, you know, to send their kids to school. So I, I think, you know, it was a surprise to the British kids to find that, I think, and they really loved it. They were inspired by it. They were inspired by everything they saw in terms of the resourcefulness, you know, the, the kind of, as I said, thirst for education. And then, and then the other side is that the Ugandans, I think, thought that when they went to the UK, they would find everything to be perfect and that somehow they would seek that for themselves. In fact, as we all know, nothing's perfect in this world. And they found schools that, you know, the behavior in certain schools that wasn't exactly the same as in Uganda. And, you know, they kind of came back thinking, yes, they have a lot more resources and we've learned a great deal from, you know, teaching style and all of that. But actually, they really valued also some of the commitment that they had in their schools and the, the sense of belonging that they have, etc. So it was a great experience on all sides. And they also did a lot together. So they learned together, they built resources together, and their teachers learned a lot from each other as well. Right. So Kate, we'll move on to the background that took you on this amazing journey. And we'll talk about your childhood. You were the youngest of three children, the, the, the daughter of a very high-flying diplomat in Brussels and, and Paris, where your father was a very senior diplomat. And it was a very happy time. You were bilingual, going to French schools, a life full of colour and happiness and a very glamorous mother <laughs> and a father with this wonderful smoked glass monocle <laughs> that I remember so well. So you had this wonderfully glamorous couple and you were a daughter of this marvellous family. Uh, your mother drove a Triumph Stag. That stuck with yeah. me because I remember those as well. And she's driving across France and play wonderfully cool French music and everything. <laughs> um, and then he became British ambassador to Ireland. And it was the height of the Troubles, Kate. And you have very clear memories of this, even though you were only eight at the time. So can we start at the point when you arrived in Ireland? Yeah, I mean, I, I was I was eight. So, you know, my, my memories of it are actually pretty vivid, actually. I mean, I, you know, I remember going on the ferry and, you know, a, a lot of attention, I suppose, as you get of a, of a sort of diplomatic family at that level. Uh, I remember the house, you know, that was sort of, you know, off, off a, a sort of country lane and lots of walls around it. With a donkey. I remember these... These sort of the donkeys, the donkeys significant because I'm really allergic to horses and I could never ride, but I'm not allergic to donkeys. And that therefore I'd always wanted a donkey because I, (laughs) my brother and sister were always off on riding and I wasn't allowed to go. So the donkey was like a major feature for me as an eight year old. And um, yeah, but I remember these sort of slightly sinister men sort of lurking around in the bushes, you know, and it, it was, we used to play. 
kind of, you know, hide-and-seek games in the dark outside. And I remember coming across them and wondering what they were doing there. And, you know, they were obviously the kind of security security people keep keeping an eye on the house. Um, but I, I remember them well thinking, well, I, I don't understand why they're here. Mm. You know, and yeah, we'd only been there two weeks. So, I mean, it was early days of a new life, really. Yes. And it was the height of the troubles, I emphasise, in 1976. And Kate, what happened next? You were there two weeks. Yeah. So, I mean, and then, you know, my father went off one morning to a meeting uh, to go and see Gareth Fitzgerald. He he was with um, a visiting uh, Secretary of State from the Foreign Office uh, for Northern Ireland. And, um, you know, the, the, the IRA detonated a, a landmine underneath the car and he was killed pretty much instantly along with a very, very young civil servant from the visiting from the UK, which was, which was a huge tragedy. She was 24, well. I think. Was she Kate? Yeah, 25, I think. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I, I often think about her and her family, actually, because there was a great deal of attention on my father, but, you know, a very young life was lost on that day too. And then Brian Cubbon and um, on the driver were injured but not killed. So the impact, I think, happened on one side of the car, so um so that so they survived it um and actually you know I've always been had a good a wonderful relationship with with Brian you know the driver because you know we sort of shared this moment and whenever I go to Ireland he's kind of there and you know it's always really lovely to see him again. <laughs> Kate, you do remember that day very well because I I think you were playing outside with what was with was it with Brian's son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, you actually heard the explosion. Yeah, we did. We so my father left, um, you know, and I, I had, uh, as I've described before, sort of spent the morning with him, and my mother was away in London, so I'd, I'd spent the morning with him, and um, you know, he 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 was a dad that worked a lot, so having those moments, particularly when you're in a family of three, you know, where you get him to yourself, you know, you cherished, <laughs> and I, I we had this really lovely morning together, and I remember really not wanting him to go, and off he went, you know, in the car, and followed by the the security people behind. And then I just went outside to play with, with Brian's son, who was a bit younger than me, but we got on very well. And, it, you know, it must have been minutes, I suppose, and we heard this big explosion. And I remember the, the ground actually shook, you know, and we just kind of looked at each other and sort of shrugged our shoulders and carried on playing, really. Um, and, then, and then the day got very strange after that. That strangeness, Kate, most of us wouldn't know about it because most of us haven't been in such a situation <laughs> as yours. So how did, your mother was in London sort of getting yeah. stuff for the, for the house. So she wasn't there when this happened. No, So how wasn't. did the day develop then? I mean, you know, it was just, it was one of those days where you kind of knew there was something up, but nobody was telling you. So there was lots of people in the house suddenly, lots of sort of whispered tones my brother and sister, you know, were kind of behaving a bit weirdly, you know, and looked very upset, but weren't, wouldn't say why. And then I remember we went out for lunch, I think, to another family, diplomatic family's house. And when we were driving out and back, you know, there were all these kind of military, you know, stopping you from going through checkpoints. And, you know, I remember asking what, what had happened and um, somebody said, oh, you know, somebody very important has been killed today. <laughs> so I sort of went, oh, really? And carried on. So it must have been very difficult for my brother and sister because, you know, they obviously had been told, but I hadn't been. And I suppose that was a choice that was made at the time. But I knew something had happened. Um, and I thought my mother died because she, you know, 
gone. She wasn't there. So my so I just thought, well, she must have died, you know. And then, you know, I was outside playing again and um, I was riding my bike, actually. And, you know, I watched this big kind of cavalcade of cars arrive and she got out. And I remember it really, really well. She picked me up, but she didn't say anything. She was just like, she was, like, oh, I'm so happy you're riding your bike, you know. And then we went inside and everybody was crying, you know. So I sort of just knew that he died you know, and I, I, and then I don't really don't remember hardly anything for for quite a long time. Actually, I think there was a lot of activity in the house and a lot of a lot of people around. And obviously, my mother was was you know really really devastated yes. and traumatized. I suppose because they, they had a very happy marriage, Kate. Yeah, I, I think they did. I think they had a real passion for each other, and you know, I think it was a massive trauma for her. Mm. But one of the most extraordinary aspects of this story is how she responded mm. almost immediately. I yeah. mean, one of the things that, that I have pondered really is recently you watched back on a television broadcast she made from her living room two days after her husband's death. What did that feel like for you to watch that broadcast and what did you take from it? I mean, you know, I had heard over the years clips of it and I had um, obviously known a lot about it. But actually watching it was was quite something. A, how young we were, because, you know, she kind of introduces us. And, um, and then watching her speak, you know, so you can see the sort of trauma edged on her face is, is one thing and in her voice. But her her words, I hadn't heard them in their entirety. Um, and, you know, I, I think it was very, very instinctive. Her gut reaction was to want to do something that honoured my father's memory, that honoured his values, that honoured what he had wanted to do in Ireland, which was to, you know, make a con- his own contribution to peace and reconciliation, to better relationships, to, to try to, to, to use his position and his leverage, whatever that might have been, to try and do something. And I think she thought, that's what I've got to do here. I, I've got no other choice and it's what I want to do and it's the right thing to do. And I think it was entirely instinctive. You know, I think she just knew that that was it and that was what she was going to do. It was remarkable in its immediate uh, forgiveness, Kate. Is, is that overstating it? I don't think she thought of it as forgiveness. You know, no. I think she thought of it as, as she always said that she just couldn't bear the waste of a life of such a brilliant man, you know, and this and this this life that had been taken away. She just she just couldn't bear the waste of it. So I, I don't think she ever thought of it as forgiveness. I, I don't think she felt she needed to forgive the Irish people of anything because, you know, Irish people hadn't done anything. You know, they were as much victims of what was going on in a way as, as she was. So I think she just saw her her responsibility to try and, you know, she was put onto this platform by this act. She She was, you know, she was given this opportunity in a way. And I thought... I think she thought that that's the only thing I can do. And she was never interested in knowing who'd done it. I mean, she was genuinely really didn't want to know when people would ask her about, you know, kind of retribution and the search for the perpetrators. She just didn't want to know because she wanted to focus all of her energies on honouring, you know, honouring the values of, of what my father lived for. 
Because your father, Kate, interestingly, I don't overstate this, he was a pacifist, I think, was yeah. he? And he, he actually was. lost an eye while a very young soldier in uh, the Battle of Al-Alamein. Am I right yeah. about that? He uh, was, yeah. Yeah, he was only 18, I think. Yeah, yeah, he was. And yeah. found himself sheltering under a, an army truck or something. Yeah. And woke up out of, became conscious uh, to the knowledge that he was lying beside an enemy soldier who was Italian. Yeah. Um, did that shape him or was he always, had he always been a pacifist? Was that... I mean, I... Yeah, he he always said that he wasn't brave enough to be a conscientious objector. You know, yes. that that's really what he wanted to be if he'd yes. been brave enough. Um, because he 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 hated violence. He was also a very kind of awkward physical man. So he wasn't physically kind of athletic or kind of, you know, good at good at all of that stuff. And I think I think that gave him a sort of sense of his own vulnerability, I suppose, you know, physically. And um, and I think that led to this sort of abhorrence of of any kind of you know physical violence. And yeah, he didn't want to fight at all. And you know he he actually you know was just started his degree and and I and I think you know got an honorary degree, but never went back to finish it. Like many young men at the time, I think. Um, so yes, he he was he was a thinker and a di- he was a true diplomat. He believed in in ideas and words and you know diplomacy. That was at the heart of him, really. Hold up! What was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Kate, your mother, your remarkable mother Jane, did not shake the dust of Ireland off her heels as almost every other human being would have and just <laughs> given the finger and walked away from us all. Um, she, in fact, visited Ireland repeatedly, including yes. Belfast. Yeah. She, she loved going to Belfast, you know, so she, she joined the, the women's peace movement with, with Betty Williams, etc. at that time, you know, and she... You know, as you know, she set up the Christopher Ewart Biggs Literary Prize. And at the time, that that had a literary prize that that, that honoured work that contributed to peace and reconciliation, written or, or theatre or script writers as well. Um, but also it had a community prize as well. So, you know, she would work with, you know, people working in, in, in civil society, in, in, in groups, in schools, etc., and it was her small way of contributing to some of that brilliant work that was happening cross community and you know she always said that in order to have a voice in 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 the whole agenda in in Ireland and in northern Ireland you had to really understand it you know you had to understand the perspectives of 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 everybody whether that was you know Sinn Féin or DUP as it is now that you you know you had to meet those people you had to understand you had to have a dialogue 
And, you know, that's what she set out to do, essentially. Um, she went to she went to the States for, you know, a few weeks as well on a, on a tour to look at, you know, the funding of the IRA and some of the, you know, some of the roots of that. So she really threw herself into it um, and, and, and sought, as an English person, you know, to really, really understand. And I think that's so important, is it? it to sort of build your literacy of the history of a place and, and what communities around you are facing. And I suppose she shared with, with many people in Northern Ireland at the time the, the personal experience of loss. And that's really important because, you know, she, she knew what that felt like in her context, but there were so many other people suffering terrible losses at the time. I must say, Kate, a lot of us here would wish that many people, many English people in particular, would follow her example and acquaint themselves with the history of Ireland. <laughs> I, don't mean, I don't mean to be mean, but we have noticed this in recent years and we'll get on to, we'll get on to more recent history in a moment. But your mother, she, she, I don't want to make this sound as if it was easy because widowhood for a start is never easy. Uh, widowhood with three small young children must be monstrous. But she actually kept going as a way of surviving. She didn't want yeah. to be alone in the dark where the darkness would overtake her. So she occupied herself by writing a book. Tell us a bit yeah. about that. Well, she wrote two books, actually. One, one was called um, Pay, Pack and Follow, which was essentially a sort of memoirs, really. It was about the, the life of a, a wife of a diplomat, you know, and all that came with that. And my, my father had been a very prolific um, diary writer. So she had all these amazing kind of data, you know, around what had been happening at the time, whether it was in Algeria where they were posted or Brussels or Paris. So she, she kind of used a lot of that and wrote about the, what was happening in the politics of the time in the countries they were, but also a personal thing about what it was like to be the wife of a diplomat and then, and then about, about kind of recovery, I suppose, from, uh, from widow, you know, from the trauma and, and widowhood and what that was like. And, you know, I, I've, I've read those bits many times around, you know, what it takes to kind of, recover from loss you know and she she was really interesting about that and then she wrote a second book about her experience in the house of lords called the lady in the lords <laughs> <laughs> um kate for you young as you were one of the phrases that jumped out at me about your your your, your recounting your own experiences is you you very clearly remember life went from technicolor to gray uh, so it must have been pretty damn grim for you and your siblings Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't great, Cathy. You know, it was, you go from one thing, a life that you're sort of used to. I mean, none of us had ever lived in the UK for a start. You know, we'd had this diplomatic life moving around countries. And suddenly we were sort of catapulted back into a life in the UK that we didn't know. And, you know, we we were all set to go to schools in Ireland and suddenly that had to change and we had to go to schools in in London. And, and I suppose, you know, many people will experience this when you have only one parent left, you become very anxious about that parent, you know, you want them to be okay, because you know that that's what you've got. And you know, they've got to be okay. So I mean, I spent a lot of my childhood worrying about my mother, and sort of playing the role of trying to make her feel better when she wasn't feeling great. And 
sort of keeping the show on the road. I, I had really bad asthma, so I wheezed my way through my childhood a lot of the time. And sometimes I think it was my way of just sort of going to bed in a way because, you know, if you couldn't breathe, you couldn't do anything, you know. So uh, that was that was me. And, I mean, I suppose we all we all had our thing. And, yeah, I mean, it... it it, it it wasn't great, you know. It was difficult. It got better. It got better bit by bit. Um, one of the, one, one of the ways it got better, Kate. I was very <laughs> amused to hear was you had an enormous crush on Bob Geldof, who lived <laughs> who lived close by, and you you tried to befriend his dog. <laughs> I did. I did have this huge crush on. I think it was partly the Irish thing. Actually, it was the voice. I was just like. You know, and yeah, he lived next door. And we lived, you know, we 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 lived in a really brilliant part of London. And, you know, in my teenage years, things definitely, definitely got better, you know. And, you know, I there were lots of fun times as well. And life wasn't boring. I mean, my mother was an extraordinary woman. So our life was was, was never dull, that was for sure. And, you know, we had huge opportunity to travel the world. And, you know, one thing she really invested in was was travel because we knew all these people who who lived in different places. So in some ways, it, it, it the colour came back, you know, it definitely did. So, Kate, you went off. Your next step was to go to Edinburgh. And you studied, interestingly, social anthropology, which, and, and there is a kind of a, there's, there's almost breadcrumbs along the way here <laughs> to, 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 to where you are today. Um so you went to it. You chose Edinburgh. Why Edinburgh? Yeah. Uh, I think I I uh, I can't remember it being a, a terribly sort of thought through process. To be honest, <laughs> yeah. I sort of you know I my brother sort of took me up to visit, and he and my sister had been at Durham, so I looked around there, and I just like I just thought Edinburgh was so beautiful, and it, I loved the idea. I loved it that it was a city as well that you could live in this in this amazingly beautiful city, but yet be a student in it. I liked the kind of size of it; it was a bit bigger. I quite liked that it was far away. <laughs> you know, not that I was escaping from anything, but you know, the distance. I've always liked, you know, momentum and traveling, and it was another what you know, it was another journey somewhere quite far afield, I suppose. And the courses were really great, and but yeah, like like all eighteen year olds. You know, in some ways, it was a sort of oh, that 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 looks nice. I'll I'll, I'll yes. go back. Yes, <laughs> lovely. Yes, why not? Except yeah. that your your um your oh what work experience or the course requirements, you ended up in Brazil during yeah. the course uh, working with uh, Brazilian street children. Yeah. Uh, yeah, which really probably was the beginning of what took yeah. you on this amazing journey through yeah. your life. Definitely. I think I'm really grateful for that experience, actually, because it, it, it was that, I mean, the degree was a, was a great learning experience and it, I really enjoyed it. But, um, but that experience really set me off sort of professionally in a way. It kind of made me, made me realise what I wanted to do. And um, it, it, it was a great passion of mine for, for a long time, actually, working with these kids. And that experience that I had that was extremely intensive um, set me up for that. And, you know, I learned Portuguese very quickly, for example. So I've always loved learning languages. And there it was just like survival mode I had to because I arrived speaking none and nobody spoke any English. So it was a it was one of those experiences that you have as a young person. You look back on it and you think, wow, that really did change my life. 
And now I spend a lot of time with young people, sometimes advising on what to do, etc. And and I sometimes say, just go for it, because you don't know whether one of these things is going to change your life or not, because it could do, and then you'll be off, you know. Yes. Now, Kate, everything was was going along nicely. You were discovering the world and the course is working out very well and everything. And your beloved mother got cancer Mm. and died when you were only 22. Yeah. Um, and you say that your childhood trauma kicked in properly then. Yeah, I, I think it probably did, you know, and, and I just missed her so much. You know, I kind of she and I had a really brilliant relationship and we just loved spending time together. We'd go on little holidays. You know, we were we were incredibly close. And um, I suppose I was also just at that age when I was starting to really discover her. You know what it's like when you're growing up, you know, and you're you start to sort of come out of yourself a bit and look at your parent as a sort of proper human being. And I that I was just sort of, you know, going through that process and then she was suddenly gone and it just felt like, you know, the carpet had been completely wrenched out from under me, you know, and and I just really did feel, I don't know, I suppose completely anchorless in the world. Um, and... It was it was far more traumatic for me than than my father's death. I think you know it was a whole different layer for me. Yeah, and you coped once again, Kate, by going out into the world, <laughs> rather as your mother did. You, yes, you you trot mummy, trot fool, as they say. You did take off, and I think did you go to do? Is that when you went to South Africa? Yeah, yeah, I went to. My mother had this. We had this this friend who was a young. When she was our au pair when we first got back from Paris, a young South African woman who um, stayed very close to my mother through the years. And she was, I don't know, she was about fifteen years older than me. And and, and she she said, "Listen, you know, come and live with me for a bit." You know, she had two young kids at the time, and in fact, she'd just been widowed as well. So she had many and, and worked in the whole political scene in South Africa. A really fantastic woman. So I went to live with her and. Um, it was really the answer because it just got me out and, you know, I, I then flew, really did, did lots of work with street kids there, travelled a lot and it, it, it really started my recovery and I'll, I'll always be incredibly indebted to her because yeah. she sort of launched me back into the world, as it were, I think. And you learned how to be a young person again. Yeah, and I had a really good time and I made some fantastic friends and I think when you lose parents young you know what supports you obviously your siblings and friends and they become your family you know and essentially my friends have kind of and and my brother you know and sister sort of brought me up really you know so so that that I started doing that again and and you know friends become became really really central yes you had two siblings Kate and of course how individual siblings turn out, I don't know. There's there's no template for it. Uh, but you remained very close. You adore your brother, I know. Um, yeah. And, and he has set up this amazing charity with his wife for children with cancer. Yeah, so he's the most wonderful man and we're incredibly close. So my sister died a few yes. years ago and I suppose, you know, he and I have been through a lot together and... I mean, he then very sadly lost his his own daughter to cancer. So um, uh, when she was only sixteen, um, so they they sold their house in London and they moved to this incredibly beautiful place in the Lake District, and they've set up this wonderful charity that provides 
a space for young people, teenagers who are in treatment for cancer or just in remission to come together and spend some time in this beautiful place and do creative things together and activities. And, you know, it breaks a bit of that isolation that young people have when they have cancer. You know, their world sort of mm. stops, mm. but yet they're supposed to be developing and moving on in their lives and their life stops. And that was certainly the experience of, of my niece. So, you know, I think, um, and, but it's, it's an amazingly well thought through charity. It's, it's really professionally run and it's really about all of those kids and their families because, you know, they provide a lot of support to, to the fam, the wider families who are going through this. Um, so it's a, it's a really wonderful place, Flynn's Barn, and it's, it's, re- it's just in such a beautiful place as well. Now, Kate, anyone listening to this will have noticed how quickly you said your sister died from cancer as well. I mean, this is a terrible chronicle of tragedy. <laughs> it's not great, is it? <laughs> no, no, it's, 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 it's shocking. What age was she when she died? Um, she was 50, in her early 50s, yeah, 52, I think. Is it a genetic cancer, Kate, do you know, or...? or, or? No, I don't think so. I mean, she had breast cancer, um, but, that, I mean, nobody thinks any of them are linked in any way. Really? So um, I don't think so. I think it's just bad luck, really, you know. And many people out there will know the randomness of cancer. Yes. You know, it yes. comes and it kind of attacks you and there's not much you can do about it, really. Yeah, um, the one thing people do say, <laughs> and I completely agree with what you've just said, but they say that stress can be a trigger. So if uh, if you were triggered, if your family was <laughs> triggered by, uh, if, it's, if that's true, then I think I can see yeah, how it might have happened. I suppose that's not so helpful for people to hear, though, is it? Because it's you know, not. stress is one of those things that, you know, if you start stressing about being stressed, then it's just going to make you even more stressed, isn't it? <laughs> that's absolutely true. I withdraw that remark entirely, actually. I like to think of of cancer as those random things that so many people get better from these days, don't they? Yes, they do. They do. You know, and I think you have to have an optimism about it, don't you? Because otherwise it just becomes, oh, you know, so, so worrying. Yes. Isn't it? Now, Kate, you're terribly interesting in your own mindset. You describe yourself as a citizen of the world, that you never felt very British that you always preferred mainland Europe and <laughs> France, which will surprise some of us who think of the British Council as being the very font of Britain and all its, I mean, all the pageantry that we see unveiled this week. And yeah. by the way, our condolences on the death of Queen Thank Elizabeth, who, who, who we had reason to see and enjoy here in Ireland yeah. in recent years. Yeah. But as, as that person, you managed to settle back into living in England, but you're a working mother now and you have a daughter aged 17. Is she yes, still 17? Yeah. I read that. She's 17, yeah, yeah. yeah. Really into musicals, I heard, on Desert Island yes. discs. <laughs> and all your life, you have put down your phone when you come in from work and you've danced around the kitchen to the musicals. Yes, and other music as well. And other music. I, yes, yes, I'm sure she's moved on a bit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but interestingly, Kate, she's also half Ugandan. She's, yes, she's, she she's is. mixed race. Yes, she is, yeah. And one of the things that did pull at my heart, I have to say, is what you, you mentioned that she told you when she was only three that she would prefer to be pink like you. <laughs> How has that been developing in the meantime? Has she got over I wanting think, to be pink? Yes, I think she looks at me now and thinks, oh, no, I don't want to look like you, you know. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's probably part of a 
process. I mean, you know, I think at the time she was just sort of comparing herself to me, you know, and yes. sort of thinking and, and realising the difference between me and her. We were actually in, living in Tanzania at the time. So, you know, everybody else was around her was black, actually. So, yes. But because I was her mother, I think she sort of just noticed the difference, really. And, you know, we then had a whole conversation. I remember it well at age three about you know, the mix that she had of her father and me. And that's why she was this lovely, lovely girl that she was. And she likes that idea of this sort yes. of mixing up and that then she came up out. And and I suppose over the years, you know, she has kind of worked that out because, you know, as a, as a mixed race person, you know, she is the only uh, non-white person in my family and she's the only mixed race person in her dad's family. So, you know, she... She's had to kind of work through that, but she's done it in, you know, I mean, she she she's done it in such a sort of calm and thoughtful and interesting way with huge support from her Ugandan family and from me and my family. And, you know, there she is, this, this wonderful mix. And if people say to her, you know, you know, where are you from? She says, I'm half Ugandan and I'm half English. You know, it's really clear for her. You know, and she... <laughs> She loves both bits of it. I mean, she she loves the Queen. You know, she she wanted to go down to Buckingham Palace and see the scene. And, you know, she loves her Englishness. And she also, you know, loves going to Uganda and spending time with her family there and her sibling, siblings and cousins and grandparents. And so it's it's she's worked it through, but she has also described that, you know, at, at times as she was growing up, that, you know, she came home from one sc- from school one day and said, you know the world thinks thinks of me as black. And I said, well, what do you think of yourself as? She said, well, I, I'm mixed race, but the world sees me as black. So kind of that's okay, you know. So, you know, it's it, as a white person, it's very difficult to know what to say to that, really, apart from just listen, you know, and engage in it and have a conversation about it. Um, which is what I've tried to do with her. Yes. Um, I can't help but think of the experience of Prince Harry's spouse, Meghan. And I don't know, Kate, if you have a view on that or want a state of view on that. Uh, I mean, I think um, all I can say is for my daughter, when Prince Harry got married to Meghan, she said to me, I never thought, you know, when I was little, I never thought I could be a princess because I wasn't white. And she said, and look what's happening now in the world. So I think, you know, what what, what a brilliant thing to happen. And, um, you know, good luck, to, good luck to them, really. Absolutely. Know? And yes. that was my daughter's reaction. And, and, and that's the thing that's, that stuck with me, really. The other thing, Kate, that you have said, and again, resonated with me very strongly. Uh, I think it was Theresa May who said, if you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere. And you've written that you found that very offensive. I mean, I think it was the concept of it, you know, that actually, you know, if I, if I look at um, so, many, so many people around us who now have mixed parentage in the world, don't they? Or who've lived and travelled and have a connection, even if they haven't lived and travelled with another part of the world, and who think of themselves as part of that world. I thought, I think it was the concept that you couldn't think of yourself as a global citizen that, that I found difficult to, to kind of conceive of, because I suppose my I've been so lucky to be able to have this 
life that has been so connected with the rest of the world. But I look at my daughter and many of her friends who have a similar experience because, you know, a lot of them come from mixed parentage, you know, Bulgarian, Polish parents, you know, from bits of Africa, etc. So I, I just feel like they as a generation, and maybe that's, the, I'm thinking about a kind of London environment more than yes, other environments in the UK, yes. and I have to be very aware of that. Mm. But certainly for, for her generation of, of people in, in her environment, there is a massive global feeling. And then there's the whole, you know, advent of, you know, social media where you can kind of be part of stuff all over the world now, yeah. you know. And sometimes my daughter talks to me about stuff that she knows about. And I go, God, how do you know about that? And she's, you know, seen it on TikTok or whatever. And so I think the idea that this generation isn't connected internationally and globally I think is, 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 for me, was a difficult concept to kind of get my head around. Mm. Now, Kate, you must have despaired about the framing around Brexit. I mean, look, I think um, what's important about now is that connections between the UK and uh, each country in each EU state member countries needs to continue and grow and thrive. And, you know, part of what the British Council does is to continue to do that through the things that are still, you know, still young people still want and need from Europe and vice versa. So our education systems, mobility, the opportunity to travel, to learn languages is ever more important now for the UK and, and for Europe. And, and I think, you know, for us and for me, continuing to provide that kind of opportunity for people to think of themselves as part of, you know, the European continent, even if we've left the EU institution, is really important. And, you know, we continue to do all we can to build those relationships for the future. Um, and, and you know, we, we find that, that there's a huge responsiveness for that because people still want to make to take part in those activities and, and, you know, to learn languages, to study abroad, to travel, etc. And, you know, the British Council kind of provides those opportunities for people. Has it made your life a lot more difficult, Kate? <laughs> well, I mean, in some, you know, in some ways, is there ever more, you know, need for it, really? I mean, so actually what we find with, with many European countries is that actually the bilateral relationship with the UK is really, really, really important and they want to sustain that. And they want to sustain it through the areas that we work in, whether it's culture or education or the English language. So I think we've found that the demand for what we do is, is ever higher because, you know, the world is a complex place, isn't it? So if it's not Brexit, it's, it's the war in Ukraine. It's, you know, and actually people to people relationships and trust and understanding is at the heart of everything that we do in the world. So our work is kind of ever more important in my mind. Well, I'm sure your parents would be very proud of you, Kate Ewart Biggs. Thank you so much for coming on the Irish Times Women's Podcast and good luck oh, well, with your work. Thank you very much for having me. And that's it for today. Thanks again to our guest, Kate Ewart Biggs. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Acast and all good podcast apps. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter at Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. The Women's Podcast is produced by Roisin Ingle and by Suzanne Brennan, with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Cathy Sheridan, and until next time, thanks for listening.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.